Love is a precious thing, I'm told. Burns just like West Virginia coal. But when the fire burns out, it's cold. And there ain't no ash will burn. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we got a special guest. Jonathan Foster. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? And then you could probably kind of lead us into kind of what we're talking about today. I don't think anyone knows any of these words on the screen here for the title. <laughs> That's good. We'll, uh, we'll learn some stuff together. What's up, man? Thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you. So yeah, my name's Jonathan. Um, I am a, an author. I have been a pastor, a church planter. Uh, been involved in lots of nonprofits and different things over the years. Kind of came from a relatively conservative background and um, just started going through things in life that my, my, my construct wasn't allowing me to come up with answers that I thought might be healthy. And so I started pulling out different threads and lo and behold, I started going through this thing called deconstruction and then some reconstruction, and then I started a doctoral program a few years ago with my friend, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. And uh, along the way, I've got introduced to this really interesting French intellectual, well, French-American intellectual by the name of Rene Girard. And so for my dissertation, that is into uh, I should be out when this airs, but it's, uh, it's called Theology of Consent. So it's mimetic theory in an open and relational universe. And it's where I take uh, Rene Girard's mimetic theory to the best of my ability and smash it together with open and relational theology and watch the sparks uh, fly and uh, kind of try to see what happens with all of that. Yeah, the word kind of uh, reminds me of mime, you know, like uh, mm -hmm. mimes. Of course, they share the root words or whatnot. Funny story, my brother went to the School of Mines in South Dakota, and we were at this family oh. gathering once, and we told my aunt, or he, she's like, where do you go to school? She says, the school of mines. And she's like, you're studying to be a mime? <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no, he wasn't studying to be a mime at all. But Thomas J. Ord, a great individual. I, I can't think of like a nicer, more right. genuine person. And right. so it, it's, I'm glad that uh, you're studying with him and learning a lot. So mimetic, did I say that right? Mimetic? You did, you did. Uh, mimetic. A theory. Tell us a little bit about what this is about. Sure. Well, first of all, my boy goes to Colorado School of Mines. So I've had the same problem <laughs> with people thinking that it's, it's mime. So uh, I relate to that. It's pretty funny. Um, all right. So mimetic theory, you want me to kind of try to like do the elevator pitch, like run through what it is? Yeah, are you doing? gonna do the the three point pitch? Uh, let's see, a three point pitch. Yeah, but it's the problem is there's more than three points. But I think I think I can kind of um, summarize it in about five points. Okay. Um, so it's it's of course not entirely sequential, but we'll try to lay it out that way so so that people can get it, uh, the best handle on it as possible. It has to do with I'll just say them real quick, and then we can go back and unpack them. Desire that leads to imitation, which, uh, like you said, mimesis comes from the word or means imitation, basically. Desire, imitation, conflict, scapegoating, and then the uh, ritualization of all that. So Girard kind of comes from a philosophical, slightly psychoanalytic background a little bit. 
um, where he is, he's, he's, all of his thinking is based around desire. And so he's coming up with this idea as he's reading great literary works, as he's studying anthropology, as he's, um, well, eventually as he's reading scripture. But the idea here is that uh, our desires are uh, built in a social construct. So I never really know exactly what it is I want until I see what it is that you want. And then, strangely enough, I start to want that. And then there's this interesting thing that begins to happen. We begin to kind of imitate each other. So desire leads to imitation. So I want the thing that you have, which inevitably drives the value of that thing up. And then you see the attention I'm giving that thing. And so then you want it uh, even more. And so you are originally the model and I'm the subject. But as we both give attention to this thing, you can quickly become the subject and I become the model. We bring our communities in uh, on all of this movement, our entire basically capitalism and certainly the marketing industry uh, in, in the West is built on mimetic desire. So desire leads to imitation. And then what Girard says is that eventually uh, where all this imitation goes is it starts to turn rivalrous. And this is a key part of mimetic theory. And that kind of defines him compared to maybe some other folks who have uh, also talked about desire. But he says things like, it's not just that we want that object. We want to possess what, the other, what we assume the other person has. And so eventually, it's not the object we want so much as it is, I want to possess who Chris is. All of this plays out against the backdrop of like insecurity and anxiety about who I am. Like one thing that seems to be true about us humans, a common denominator, you might say, is our intense awareness of our own uh, lack, to use a philosophical word, our own shortcomings. And so when I see you going for that thing, my assumption down deep with my desire is that, oh, you have it all put together. And by the way, you look like you have it put together. So that's helpful. And so I want that thing because I want to fill this lack. And so eventually, um, I'm not imitating you so much to get that thing as, as much as I want to become you. This is what Gerard says. Well, this, this turns, as you can imagine, rivalrous, and then this conflict grows out of it. And we pull our community into it, and we begin to see each other as rivals, and the conflict brews and grows, which leads to this piece that is uh, probably that Girard's most well-known for. I'm flying through this, by the way, but then we can go back and you know talk about any of it. Uh, he's probably most well-known for this idea of scapegoating. And what he discovered, or maybe it's better to say what he uncovered uh, through his anthropological studies and through reading um, a lot of great literary classics, is that at the edge of chaos, when two communities are pulled together, or two people who bring their communities, when they're, when they're pulled at the edge of chaos and they're pointing their finger at each other, that humanity, we devise this ingenious way to deal with our conflict and our antagonism. And that is at the last moment although sometimes we actually go over the edge and go full on into battle or whatever the case might be. But more often than not, what we do is at the last moment, instead of pointing our fingers at each other, we, we decide to unify and we turn and we point our fingers at someone else. And so instead of saying you're the problem and you say, and I'm the problem, we both agree that it's someone else's, someone else is the problem. And scapegoating is this kind of weird psycho-spiritual projection, you might say, or a transference onto someone else. And now we get to agree together 
that, you know, we're okay. It's really this other person. And usually that other person is someone that looks different than us or comes from a different part of the world or in some way, some, you know, just doesn't fall in the same line as, as us or from the same background or something. And so then we scapegoat that person. Girard says that's how humanity has um, come to peace. That's how they've ordered peace. That's how they've ordered civilization. They, their desires have led to imitation, that have led to conflict, that have led to scapegoating. And then the last piece is we basically repeat that time again, time and time again. When the next conflict arises, which it inevitably does, we basically say in so many words, oh, remember what we did last time? Um, obviously, we don't say this literally, but essentially we say, remember what we did last time? We scapegoated. We got a sense of peace. We were able to kind of catharsis is a great word for, for what's happening here. We had this cathartic movement. We were able to get rid of, you know, our pain and our antagonism, put it all in the scapegoat, kill them, murder them, lynch them, throw them in the volcano, push them in the oven. You know, the list is endless. Don't sit with them at lunchroom, uh, write some bad social media, you know, post about them, any number of ways to scapegoat them. That's how we get to peace. And so we, we do that over and over. And Girard says that religion grows out of that. So what is super fascinating is that for Girard, religion is a Catholic, is, right? He was a Catholic. That's correct. So for him, religion becomes the way to um, manage our violence and to process our violence. So sometimes, you know, we'll be in conversations with people who are maybe atheists or militant, uh, non-believing uh, folks who will say religion inspires violence. And I think there is some truth to that. But the deeper truth, according to Girard, it's actually flipped. Violence has what has inspired our religion. Our societies have been built on the scapegoating mechanism uh, where we victimize people. So sacrifice becomes this central thing. Wow, that was a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. Yeah, that was. But there's there there's a lot, lot to unpack there. And yeah. so I, I do see some evidence for, let's say, uh, some sort of resonance in desires. We see different crazes throughout history. There's a, there's a great book um, that was written called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And I read it when I was a lot younger. Nice. And it talks about uh, various psychoses that grip people at certain times. Mm. Uh, you see uh, massive inflation of values, like maybe like the pet rock craze. And you're old enough to remember maybe in the 90s, the Tickle Me Elmo craze is what I, I was thinking about, where Absolutely. everyone had to have one. I remember a kid watching uh, Saturday Night Live and Norm MacDonald is on there. And he said, you know, uh, this this uh, Christmas is number one toy, Tickle Me Elmo. This Christmas is least popular toy. You guessed it. Tickle <laughs> Me Frank Stallone. <laughs> and so uh, what happened there was some sort of... Uh, reverberation of value people saw that this toy was valued so their kids wanted this toy there's this limited quantity and everyone's rushing to grab them and as people are rushing to grab them this new cycle is created around this phenomena which just advertises this more and so then you had these things being resold this was in the days before e ebay or anything like that so you didn't you didn't get like 
that type of market in a, a digital format to see what they're going for. But they're going for 10, 20 times uh, what people paid for premium. And so you do see this, this kind of uh, madness of crowds take effect once in a while in the marketplace. Yeah, well, it actually goes on all the time. I mean, I would argue, well, I don't know why I have to argue. I would contend that, you know, the clothes that we are wearing, um, they have the value of these clothes. The reason I chose this shirt at some levels because I saw someone else wearing it. And the marketers know, have a really good way to leverage all of this stuff. You know, the, 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 the style of hairstyle is crazy. I mean, why in the world from one generation to another does it change? Or uh, the kind of cars that we drive, any number of things. It definitely gives insight as to how uh, certain things become popular, for sure. Right. Like when I saw this shirt and it was 90% off and the, this clearance rack. I yep. was all over that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because because at some point in a in a mimetic universe, in a relational cosmos, you have gleaned the idea that to buy something on the clearance rack is, well, first of all, that's not to say that you might be frugal. You might not want to spend a lot of money. That's true, too. But also probably somewhere going on in there is the idea that, you you know, you learned from someone else that this is the best way to spend your money. And and that there's no reason to spend more on a shirt or any number of things. Those are all socially constructed, um, mimetically influenced kind of ideas. So it's it's all around us for sure. Okay, so uh, what mimetic theory looks like to me is a model of explaining the facts, right? It, it, mm -hmm. it, it tries to set up an origin of desire. Mm -hmm. I, our desires are socially constructed. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, how how explanatory do you see that as for what we actually experience around us, our, our own origins of desires? Do you think that's explanatory, or do you think maybe there's individual origins of de desires? How does this how does this all come about? If everything's a social construct, how does society start? Where, where's the initiation of it? Yeah, so this plays in a bit to the idea of certainly with open and relational theology, and we don't have to go there entirely yet, but this idea that it seems to me that we live in a relational universe. So it's not a substance-based universe. It's not an atomistic where you can separate everything. Actually, the power, or the, uh, if that's the right word to use, is in the relationship between substances. And this seems to make sense with humans and desire as well. Um, where did it initially start? Is that the question? Yeah, basically, yeah. if, if, if everything's a social construct, well, society kind of had to start at some time and mm -hmm. what's the initiation of how does, how does this social construct actually become the social construct? So that's a good question. Um, because I'm pretty confident. Well, I would say within this model and if, within open and relational theology, yeah, nothing starts on its own. So I don't know for sure if we know exactly what has started. This has implications, by the way, to uh, creation in Genesis, the uh, first couple of chapters also. But um, let's say it's socially constructed, and let's maybe think in terms of Genesis. Um, this Adam and Eve story is pretty interesting because it can be explained in kind of a mimetic way. And certainly as it begins to fall apart and as this these relational tendencies are passed on to Cain and Abel, and then Cain kills his brother. 
doesn't want to be culpable for it, doesn't want to take responsibility for it, winds up moving east of Eden and founding, well, he probably joined up with other people, but he founded the first civilization essentially built upon um, scapegoating, sacrifice, not taking responsibility for it. So there's an interesting biblical story about at least the the way kind of the problem started, and it had to do with these people not taking ownership of wanting to blame the person next to them for their problems. And then it, it just kind of builds and grows from there, I think might be one way to answer that. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sold on mimetic uh, theory. Cool. And so, um, but I, I do see evidence for it, especially in those type of uh, popular delusion scenarios that we talked about a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, uh, number one, is this theory falsifiable? Is there any type of counter evidence if it were to exist, which would say that mimetic theory is unfounded or false? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um so in general, I would say, no, it's not something that could be uh, falsified. It is similar to like, you know, if we were having a conversation about Freud or Hegel or Lacan um, or philosophical kind of ideas, when you're dealing with desire, there is something here that's not objectively uh, able to be measured because we're talking about the subconscious and the unconscious. And so it builds upon a long history of really interesting, uh, well, in this case, men. Um, thankfully, over the last few generations, some women are getting more and more involved. Um, and so I don't know that it falls into the, like this strict kind of scientific falsifi- falsifiable kind of idea. I will say that um, I think if I could back off of falsify, I don't know what like the next rung down would be. Maybe... I could say there are some things about mimetic theory that are maybe verifiable. Things like um, the way Girard interpreted myth. Um, I think that that's, it's safe to say that that's verifiable and that a lot of people who aren't necessarily even Girardian have verified the idea that, for example, for Girard, um, the great mythic stories of humanity are almost always, if not always, built upon the idea that the victim is actually guilty at some level. And by the way, this is for him a really important turning point because he begins to return, as you've already mentioned, to his Catholic roots. He begins to remember the Jesus story. And so he he goes back and rereads it as an adult. Um, and as a, at the time, not a believer, because you know, if you're a French intellectual with any kind of street cred, you can't be a believer. Yeah. Right. Right. So that was a, that was a big, big turning point for Gerard. Um, and he began to see that the gospel stories, part of, part of the reason he thinks there's veracity there is because the gospel story about Jesus is that uh, the victim in this case is clearly uh, innocent and is not guilty. And so the whole thing plays out against the backdrop of this mythic way humanity is has operated, which has always seen the victim as guilty. So I think that's verifiable. And I will say one other thing, there's something about mere neurons on a neurological sense that I think verifies a lot of this um, imitative behavior for sure. Obviously, I'm not a neurologist, but the idea, the idea is simple enough in that humans are like you know, it seems to be one of the things that really sets us apart from other animal species. We have this ability to imitate 
But we've discovered uh, in the last, what, 20, 30 years that uh, neurologically we are wired to do such a thing. And so um, some of the scientists have coined this idea of mirror neurons. So when, uh, you know, someone sees me do something, certain things are firing in their brain and they begin to imitate that. Mm -hmm. So there are things like that. I think um, that it's safe to say they're verifiable, but I don't know that it falls into the falsifiable. um, Yeah, to to me... This seems like a model of interpreting reality more mm-hmm. so than like a strict science. And so if, if I'm reading mm-hmm. someone like Nietzsche and Nietzsche has this idea of will to power that every mm-hmm. single individual is trying to achieve this, this uh, power fantasy and survival is just one aspect. And my problem with Nietzsche is he just like, he just makes claims. It's like, uh, okay. And, and he, he like, he assumes everyone has his internal thought processes too. And mm, so it's right. like, I, you might be stretching a little bit there, friend. And uh, yeah. so it, it yeah, it, it, it kind of fits the data in a loose sense, but it's not, I wouldn't call Nietzsche scientific, for example. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with it. And that's, that's what I was alluding to earlier. That's similar to Freud, um, Hegel, Jacques Lacan is somebody that is not talked a lot about with, uh, it, with Girard. A lot of the stuff that Lacan talked about, um, Girard kind of built upon or used. It's kind of weird because they were somewhat contemporaries and probably even, uh, I think Girard was pretty aware of Lacan in terms of even a potential rival, which is fascinating because, you know, the rivalrous relationship within mimetic theory is a really important thing. So I, I probably agree with you. I, I, you know, where we take all of that, obviously, these are incredibly brilliant people who have who've offered a ton of insight but you're right uh, when you, each of these folks that you read you have to kind of learn their language and where they're coming from and um i will say for gerard it's fascinating he's something of a polymath his thinking has has crossed into a lot of different disciplines so he's not like going to just be studied in a philosophical sense or just in literary criticism which he is in both of those things or in just theology um, or anthropology, it's it's all of these things. And you're seeing a lot of folks from a lot of different disciplines borrow and lean into this. And I think there's something to be said uh, for all of that as well. All right. So uh, uh, I do want to, you kind of uh, jogged my memory there a little bit about talking about some practical implications of this theory. But I wanted to touch touch basis on maybe some competing theories. And so I, I put, I was just uh, brainstorming and throwing some out, maybe something like a blood memory. Maybe things are ingrained in us. Oh, I got a little video to show us. It, it's about cats. Okay. And so it kind of, uh, I, I'm what I was reading about mimetic theory, it doesn't necessarily apply also to animals. And so that might be the solution here, but we'll go ahead yeah. and play it. How do animals know how to animal? When they're not taught, like nobody, nobody teaches them. Like if you get a cat and it spawns, and you take it away from his mom, and you get a cat, the cat knows how to cat without looking at any other cats. How? <laughs> and so uh, you'll see these YouTube videos where people have cats, and the cat will be eating at like a water dish, and they'll put a cucumber behind the cat, and the cat seems to have. I, the best way to describe it is like a blood memory 
uh, of snakes in the grass, something like that. So these oh, wow. cats will turn around and they'll see these cucumbers and they will just skyrocket into the oh. air. They'll, they'll freak out. They'll jump in the air. They've never seen a snake before in their life. So how does a cat know how to cat, I guess, uh, might be a question. And does that apply to humans? Do we have any of those types of blood memories, would you think? I think so. Um, I think there's definitely possible. You know, there, there is imitative behavior within animals for certain, but we, we don't see them, you know, moving to a point of conflict where they, well, that's not even true either. I started to say they don't scapegoat. They might in the sense that the weak are singled out and are often left behind and those kinds of things. So I suppose that that probably stretches the definition of scapegoating. But um, there's probably some crossover there. Yeah. And so blood memory, like, are you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, like, so a generation of humans may have uh, let's say, you know, trauma from previous generations and that's kind of passed down from generation to generation. Yeah. Something like that. Like a, yeah. a war, war, warrior ethos, maybe, maybe yeah. your, your uh, predecessors hunted big game and, and uh, they were filled with blood rage for, for this. And, you know, it, it kind of fizzles out, but there might be some sort of remnant left there. Some sort yeah, of I memory. Think, I think so. I think uh, I'm obviously outside of my field, but um, trauma, as I understand it, is stored in the body, and that stuff biologically is passed on to us. And so these kind of behaviors, I think, are, and, and maybe more important to mimetic theory is the idea that these kinds of things are passed on through ritual. And so one generation learns from the next generation how to scapegoat. You know, they watch the others. Now, there's no, like, you know, we're not sending people to a website and say, do these 10 things so that you can feel better. It, it Once you kind of bring awareness to it, the efficacy of the whole thing, you know, begins to diminish. Uh, so it needs to work at subconscious and unconscious and almost invisible levels. But, um, you know, there, there are a lot of different instances where this kind of scapegoating thing has been taught and the the culture has uh, benefited, maybe that's not the right word, but has grown from it. So I think of probably a little bit of both, but there's probably some blood memory yeah. and probably some ritualization going on. How about uh, this idea? One of the ideas I jotted down, maybe, maybe a hive mind. I, I, I do believe that each of us have some sort of spiritual connection. We're not, we're not objects standing alone in a universe. Right. There's some sort of mental, hey, here's an example. I'll go to Walmart. And I'll look at the cash registers and they're all empty. No, no one's in line. And I'll go like, here's my time to grab some ice cream and bring it to the counter before it melts so I could get it home. And it won't be all melty. And I'll go grab it. I'll come back. And then there's going to be huge lines. It's like people like move in waves. It's, it's not like yeah. nobody wants to wait in line. So it's not like it's not like you're trying to imitate someone saying that person's jumping in line. So I got to go jump in line. I see the line. I was like, I'm going to go put my ice cream back and wait a while. Maybe this line will fizzle. I, I don't like melty ice cream, I guess, is the point of the story. That, that but, is the point. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to be that people work almost with collective action subconsciously sometimes. I think so. I wonder, I mean, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the collective conscious that, you know, Carl Jung talks about. Um, I don't know how similar that is to hive mind what I'm thinking of is patterns and ways that we move 
that seems to be true throughout the universe. It seems to be true of humans. And um, patterns can easily translate into crowds. Crowds can easily turn into mobs. Uh, the mob can, you know, the mob is going to eventually scapegoat. They're going to victimize somebody. I think we are mimetically influenced probably way more than we realize. And maybe it's, yeah, it's happening in ways we can't even really quantify sometimes. I, I don't think that that's a, I don't think that's a stretch, no. So if, if we have linked minds, it might not be that I'm trying to imitate you, but maybe our prior our priorities are have a mental link together. Right. That's that's not saying that there's not feedback loops or anything like that, but it, it would treat us more like less less individualistic and more of a collective. Right. But I don't know. I don't know that that would necessarily render mimetic theory irrelevant, um, but they probably they probably dovetail together pretty nicely. I could I could see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. So how about uh, genetics? Maybe our genetics are just programmed to ma make us want certain things. I mean, uh, I, I was watching this uh, little video that someone someone put on YouTube and they what they do is they collect plastic chairs and they have over 200 plastic chairs. And to them, it's like the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> it's like I don't I don't think someone taught this guy to value these chairs. I it seems yeah. to be very niche and he might be the only person in the world who likes this thing. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's maybe. something hardwired in this guy. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe some, maybe the chair is a stand in for something else that he saw someone else, someone else collecting and it, you know, mutated with him into the chair. It would be, it would be hard to, well, it's hard to, it's impossible to figure out how anyone could come up with any desire on their own. Anyhow, like it's so abstract, it's, it's actually pointless. Mm -hmm. So I, I would be willing to, to think that he was yeah he's mimetically influenced somehow but your point is well taken too at what point do these do some of these actions become like hard i'm i'm hesitant to say hardwired but yeah they they become pretty firmly wired in us at times so that that all being said we mm -hmm. we talked about this is kind of framing model it's not mm -hmm. necessarily scientifically unfalsifiable Right. Uh, let's move to the, the practicality. What kind mm -hmm. of practicality to our day-to-day -day lives does this give us? Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to be aware of. Once you kind of start to see the way desire can lead to imitation, can lead to conflict, the way that, um, like Girard will, will even, uh, because there's obviously several subpoints that we covered over, but something like, he'll delineate between what he calls internal mediation versus external mediation. And for him, external mediation is when you imitate someone who is not within your circle of influence, so to speak, doesn't really cross, doesn't really intersect with your, um, with your circle. And so this might be a distant uncle. This might be someone who's not even alive anymore. It might be an author, might be someone from the other side of the world. That's external mediation. Um, and it's generally a relatively health, healthy kind of a thing. Internal mediation is more when you're imitating someone who is a part of your world and who, if potentially they get something before you get it, because we're also really, we're scarcity-minded um, individuals for, and collectively uh, to a great degree. So um, 
so this begins to explain why family squabbles, I think it begins to explain why family squabbles can be so intense or why inner relations in church can be the most intense thing or why countrymen, why civil wars tend to be more violent and bloody maybe uh, than other wars. I'm, I'm overgeneralizing a little bit, but in terms of practicality, like it's helped me a lot. It's helped me a lot be aware of those that I'm in close relationship with and how quickly, if I'm not careful, I can allow the relationship to turn rivalrous and how easy it is for someone, you know, let's say for an author, an author on the other side of the world who's selling some books and, you know, maybe writes in a different genre. There's like, it's cool. We can interact and never feel competition. But an author who's doing uh, the same thing that I'm doing, I could I could easily feel in competition with them. So I'm trying to answer the question. Like, that's just one practical thing that I have found to be really helpful. And I've also found it helpful to kind of walk through people, walk with people through that. It, there seems to be some insight there. Right. One of the rules in my house is uh, we don't begrudge others for getting things or privileges that we ourselves are not entitled to. And, yeah. and so I, I came to this realization. I was working at a place once and uh, they needed to disperse traffic. And so they had my, my section come in half an hour early. But then any day that there was a, like an early release, like an hour, we'd be losing that extra half hour because everyone's released at the same time anyway. And I was driving mad at myself one day until I realized, you know, listen, I, I signed up to work the full day. I'm getting 30 minutes. I, I don't deserve the hour. It's like, I can't, I'm not going to begrudge the system or others. This is not something that I'm entitled to, you know? And, and so I, I try to teach my kids that uh, you know, let people be happy with the things that they get and don't be jealous or envious over things that we ourselves are not entitled to. And I, I think it's a good mentality. My other rule is no mullets. And so it's a very rule-free household. <laughs> So but those are the two, those are the two rules. Yeah, the two rules. That, those are outstanding <laughs> rules, man. I can't, I can't top that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So um, this, this, this envy that people feel for others, this desire mm -hmm. to have their things, it, it is a very destructive and if mimetic theory helps counter that. I think that would be a very good practical lesson, whether or not someone buys wholly into mimetic theory. Sure. I mean, even if they just took parts of that and began to grow in their self-awareness of this, this spiraling downward movement of competition. And, you know, you mentioned jealousy and envy. Um, I think it's Girardian to say that, you know, jealousy is about wanting the thing that the other person has. Envy is wanting the, is a little bit deeper. It's wanting the relationship that the other person has with that thing. And so jealousy might be, oh, I want the girl, but envy might be, oh, I want the relationship that that guy has with that girl. It may not be the girl itself, which is really fascinating. And it's this Girardian movement of wanting to possess uh, something. And so I think, yeah, anything along those lines of helping people kind of gain insight into some of their desires would be super helpful in our world. Yeah, I, I, I feel like you cover that in your treatise. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll pull that up. It's either that or uh, other things I was reading on mimetic uh, theories, but I think yeah. it was yours. I'll pull that yeah. up so people can see that. And this is uh, a theory of our theology. I'm sorry, a theology yeah. of consent, mimetic 
theory in an open and relational universe. And so you yeah. said this is going to be coming out in a book. That's and right. uh, since, of course, this interview is being published in October, it might be coming out shortly or already has come out, whichever of those is factual. <laughs> and so diff, uh, probably available on Amazon. Yeah, it'll be on all the on all the digital retailers for sure. All, yeah. all the digital retailers. Fantastic. Yeah. So the the idea of this book is uh, interacting mimetic theory and an open and relational universe. I guess the next question is, what is an open and relational universe? I'll let you answer, and then I'll interrupt you with yourself, because I got some fantastic quotes from you that I can pull up and read. Cool, cool. Um, so you're going to interrupt me with stuff that I wrote? Yes. That's a, I wish people, yeah, that's a great way to be interrupted. Um, so open relational theology, uh, which then translate into open relational universe. So I'll quickly line that out too. Again, it's not it's not linear. So these kind of things all happen. But um, the idea is that we live, I usually start with the relationship part, is that we live in a relational cosmos. So like we've already mentioned, nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, things are always playing off of each other. We really began as a species to figure this out. Well, others had figured it out long before this, but scientifically, or when the theory of relativity, you know, became known, when quantum mechanics became known, and we realized, and we're still trying to figure this out, but we we gained a sense of realization that, oh my word, we live in in an entangled universe. Everything is interconnected, biologically. Uh, we've already talked about desires. That's true. Um, you know, the trees breathe. Carbon or oxygen, and we breathe. We breathe it in, and then we give them carbon dioxide. Um, you know, the oceans are connected to climate change. The soil is connected to fish that are connected to humans. It's crazy on a microscopic level. You know, the, the power is not necessarily in the electron, the neutron, or the proton. The power is in the relationship between these things. So it's not a it's not a substance atomistic universe, mechanistic, Darwinian. Cartesian, you can pull things apart like you pull a car apart. It's a very organic thing that's happening. Um, and you and I are a part of all of that. They're, they're, it's difficult once you start really peeling away the layers, it's difficult to see where, we, where you end and I begin and vice versa. And I mean this both you and I personally, but in terms of humanity, all people, but for that matter, like I've already said, it's this, the relationship we have with the world is so symbiotic. It's, it's difficult to see how we could be separate. So like Alfred North Whitehead, who is the progenitor of what's called process theology, which influences open and relational thought theology uh, a lot, you know, uh, we'll talk about how we're not exceptions, but we are exemplifications of what's going on. So, you know, you and I didn't come from somewhere else, we emerge from the world and the world emerges from the universe and the universe emerges from, I don't know, other universes, which might all emerge from God. What's interesting about open and relational theology is that it brings the divine right into the mix of all this interrelatedness. And it says expressly that, that the divine isn't standing outside of time and space and then, you know, stepping in from time to time, but that the divine is interconnected with us and is influenced by us. A lot of American Christians would be shocked to discover that a lot of 
our theology is built upon this idea of what's called impassibility or sovereignty, immutability, this thing that where God can't change or God can't be affected. You want, want to, I'll tell a really quick antidote along that line. Yes, uh, yes. On a Calvinist Facebook page, I posted the poll question, do you affirm divine simplicity? Um, 50%, uh, yes, a 50% never heard of the idea. There you go. Yeah. And so pe- people don't know their theology. Right. And it's not, it, it definitely comes from a Calvinistic, which is a huge chunk of Americanized Christianity, Christianity, but that then influences even Wesleyan Arminian and other things too, or Catholicism. Like a lot of people ha- don't realize how much they're influenced by this idea that, um, that yeah, it doesn't it doesn't match up with their theology that God could actually respond to prayers and and to interact in this way. So I'm rambling a bit, but what I love about open relational is that it brings God into the mix. Okay, so if that's true, if that is the nature of reality, and God is in the middle of all of this with us, it seems to say something about the future, because if God is truly interacting with us, that means that He or she potentially doesn't know how things are going to play out. If the divine already knew how everything would play out, there would be no real relationship. There wouldn't be love, by the way. I happen to think the truest and best thing we could say about the divine is that, is that God is love. I think, that's the, I think that's our hope. Well, if in any relationship that we have, if, the, if one person is controlling the other, or if one person knows all the things that are going to happen with the other, I don't think we'd be able to call that love. There has to be a sense of vulnerability and risk and unknown. And so a commitment to rela- rela- relationality at some point is a commitment to the fact that we live in an open and universe. So the future is not predetermined. Yeah, so At one point in your book, I thought you were going to start talking about uh, uh, Wild at Heart, that book about uh, how wildness is kind of inherent and you kind of need that. Mm. You're talking about like and, John Eldridge, wildness? Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, well you, you start talking about wildness. I thought yeah, you know, that's where yeah, you're yeah. going, but you didn't quite go there. But that's no, what it I, reminds me of. So what I would like to say without being disrespectful to John Eldridge, who, by the way, will have sold more books than I ever will in my entire lifetime. Um, like there is a beauty about wildness. And I, and I quote John Muir, actually, who says wildness is a necessity. So what I'd like to think is I take the good parts of this wildness and I, and I connect it with God and hopefully, um, yeah, I, to take this and to esteem the, like the kind of the randomness and the aleatory way in which life seems to unfold, but that, that this doesn't diminish God's presence, that this actually, if anything, might esteem love and that love is with us in the middle of all this beautiful, unfolding, undomesticated wildness and unpredictability at times that brings both good and bad. Um, I think there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. And and uh, one of the analogies you use in your treatise is the relationship of uh, parent and child, which is an analogy, a metaphor, and maybe even a little bit more literal than moderns would like to think analogy between God and man within the Bible. I was just reading the other day, uh, William Robertson Smith's uh, lecture on the religion of the Semites. He said, there's, there's very little distinction in, in the ancient uh, worldview of uh, metaphor and reality. And so when they're talking mm. about being sons of God, 
they, they probably mean that in a lot more literal way than we might like to imagine. There, there's a familial aspect. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, read a quote by yours. Okay. You talk about what open and relational theology is. And I think you actually have a lot better treatment of this than most open theist works that I've seen. A lot of them are just Thank like, you. oh, it's 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 just about human freedom and a future. Oh, no, it's let's add this to the stream and let's let's look at how you write and you define yeah, let's, the let's issue. Let's see what I wrote, man. And And I think this is critical. You say. There's a little dogma surrounding open and relational criteria, but generally the theologians, thinkers, and believers present a share commonality within around two ideas. I think I think you're right on here. That God experiences time moment by moment. Yeah, it, God is uh, sequential. The result of which is an undetermined future, e.g., example, or in other words, open. The future has not yet happened. Therefore, it follows that the future is unknowable. And noble in the strict sense. I could I could still know things about the future, but it doesn't have like a defined truth value. I think that's what you're going for there. It would only be noble if it were set in stone, fixed, or complete. An open view rejects the notion of a God with exhaustive divine foreknowledge of all future events. And number two, this is interesting, that God is deeply interconnected with creation. Uh, relational, in other words, relational. The fundamental building block of blocks of all creation from the micro to the macro is not independent and substance-based. Rather, it is interdependent and relationship-based. This is true of the cosmos and again of God. Therefore, a relational view rejects the notion of a God that's separate, unable to suffer, that's pretty critical there, and impervious to change. God is not immutable. Whatever God is, he or she is dynamic, interactive, ex experiential, and intimately related to all creation moment by moment. One of the things I love about what you have here, it's not about the creature. This is about who God is. Open and relational theology is not about some abstract notion of metaphysics. It's about the nature and character of God, which with both of these points, you're hitting on pretty uh, pretty strenuously. Uh, you you pinpoint what, what the what the key issues are. Yeah, that's nice. We should have just read that from the beginning. Yeah, well, then I wouldn't let you uh, dive into it before uh, we we pull this out. So yeah. I think I think we're pulling out some some beautiful content here. Thank you. And so, open and relational theology is a theology about how God operates, and you use the word organic. God is organic. He's not mechanistic. That's that's a big problem with systematic theologies. Uh, they they try to build formulas for God. I, I think that's a big problem. Um, <clears throat> it treats him as like a a cosmic equation rather than a creator who lives and suffers and inter interacts with us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, go if you want to make a comment. I got a cough here real quick, so I'll put myself on mute. <laughs> no, I think that's 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 you've. It's well put. Uh, it's an organic God, um, and and things aren't mechanistic. You can't you can't pull them apart and then put them back together. There's something that with evolution, like evolution, is a really big piece of this. Like that has figured out how to for things to grow and organically become something other than what they were, and um, it's not something that the scientists. Although I'm, I'm happy to try to align myself with as much science as possible. It's not something that the science 
scientist is able to uh, necessarily corroborate for us. I think it's a really beautiful way to think of God, and it's it's slightly different, if not largely different, than the way most American Christians think. Yeah, there, there's something about how how the universe functions. I just retweeted a guy who talking about the placebo effect, and that that the fact that the placebo effect is actually effective at treating people's ills prove yeah. that there's some sort of mental connection to the health of our body that our internal thoughts and can affect the world outside itself or, or even within the body body the body can heal itself through entirely mental processes and i i do th- i do think that is a key element of the world in which we live it, it's not mechanistic mechanistic we're not we're not solitary objects independent and unconnected to each other we're connected to everything else. We interact with everything else. We are a part of this ecosystem rather than a computer program, rather than a computer simulation. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's well put. And I think there's a lot of beauty in that. There's a lot of challenge in that too, because it presents vulnerabilities that sometimes we don't want to admit. But um, And also a lot of responsibility as well, because now, like, am I, bro- am I my brother's keeper? Well, I, I kind of am. Um, and and uh, the way to kind of move forward in the ecological crisis that we're in, as well as all the other crises that we're in, is to see ourselves in the other person and to recognize like this deep entanglement that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's talk a little bit about your book. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about. I know we're talking about a lot of themes and concepts, but tell us a little bit about Maybe the problem statement of the book. There, there's a problem in the world, and your book provides solutions. So, what is the problem statement? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer for that. Like, uh, and probably, I probably should. So, there's probably a couple of different ways to answer that. You know, initially, the problem was, gosh, I love memetic theory. It's helped me explain a lot of things. It's given me insight. And oh, I also love open and relational theology. It's also helped me. But these are two, um, for the most part, entirely different things. You know, Girard is more anthropological, open and relational, as we've already talked about, is more maybe metaphysical, more about God. Um, and so that was a that was a problem for me. If mimetic theory describes the nature of reality, you know, or does it describe the nature of reality? And and if so, what how does open and relational play into that? So that's kind of where it started. And what really the problem became for me is this, it, the really the problem centers around love and how love interacts with us. And I, I, kept, I kept being led back to love and this idea of consent. So the, so the title of the, of the work is Theology of Consent, which, by the way, side note, I learned late in the game that Simone Weil uh, had written some, uh, an essay, you know, probably 100 years ago. I can't remember exactly when she lived called The Theology of Consent. So um, if you're looking for the theology, like the one and only, you should probably read Simone Weil and not mine. Mine is just Theology of Consent. But I love this idea of consent and um, the idea that I think that the best thing we can say about God is that God is love. And the fundamental, fundamental characteristic of love is consent. It began to help me unpack some of the trauma that I've been through, some of the intense loss that I've been through. And so really, initially, what I'm trying to say is, you know, the problem thing was, how do these two things work together? The more I lived with it, it was, 
what does consent, what does that mean? How does that begin to unpack and explain who God might be and what love might be doing in our world? I think that's a, I think that that's a way to answer that question. Yeah, I definitely think that is uh, on a deeper level. The problem is, I guess we live in a broken world and we're trying to make sense of the right. the structures of humanity, the cycles of violence, and just just our day to day experiences in this human society. So, uh, our answer is uh, building a theory, a mimetic theory of human relationship, and then interposing on top of this 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 theory of open and relational uh, theology. How does that? I know you write about it in your book. How does that relate to scapegoating and kill the scapegoating process? Yes. So one of the things that I intuited pretty quick is that both open relational theology and mimetic theory are really suspicious. I'll say it this way. They're they're really suspicious of sacrifice being a redemptive thing, of love or God needing someone to pay in order for love to be fulfilled or in order for God to be happy. Both ideas uh, approach this, you know, both worldviews approach this idea with with quite a bit of suspicion. Um, and so I had to live with that for a little while and try to figure out what, you know, what this means, because it's not as if you can extract sacrifice, let's say, from the Bible. And even philosophically, or you might even say anthropo- anthropologically, there is a type of altruistic sacrifice that, that we all recognize is, is a really helpful thing. And so I wind up playing with that a lot. I, I landed on this idea that what I think is healthy is to think of, well, I, I kind of got, I'm not great at, I'm not a big English grammar guy, but I got help from somewhere. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but this idea of reflexive verbs versus non-reflexive verbs. And so a reflexive verb is something where the subject essentially consents to the idea, decides to enter it into themselves. Non-reflexive is when the subject is imposed upon by some outside external force. That started to help me in a quicker, in a quick, easy way to delineate between a bad kind of sacrifice and a good kind of sacrifice. So reflexive sacrifice is one that I enter into consensually. Non-reflexive are these things that are uh, imposed upon me by a religious system that says, or by a cultural system that says you have to do these things in order for, well, you to be happy or in order for the divine to be appeased, in order for God to forgive you, et cetera, et cetera. And so that helped me, um, you know, that helped me still keep sacrifice in play, but to quickly kind of dial in uh, the healthy parts of it. And I can't even remember the question you asked. Where, what what are we talking about? Well, we're going to talk about how um, the open relational theology relates to scapegoating. Oh, so oh, in oh, yeah. mimetic uh, theory, uh, you have two objects or, or uh, desirers, and they desire the same object. Their desire mm-hmm. creates rivalry, which mm-hmm. creates tension, and that tension eventually is solved by them turning their anger or their focus on a scapegoat, someone who basically appeases this type of rivalry that they could both put their frustration into or violence. But you mm-hmm. write about how God intervenes maybe in this cycle through relational theology. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for getting me back on track. Um, although that stuff about sacrifice, that that's helpful too. Um, what I think open relational theology wants to say is, is to back up and go and think more in terms of uh, what I may think I reference as our origin story. I think a lot of our problems and maybe all of our religious problems could be addressed if we had what I think is a healthier origin story. And that is that God has never been separate from us. So uh, again, I'm speaking loosely. Uh, I know it's not always um, quite this broad, but broadly speaking, American Americanized Christianity has been taught that essentially things used to be good, then we messed up and God turned his or her back on people. Or that, you know, again, that God was separate and had to come from somewhere else, that God wasn't really interconnected. The open relational theology says that doesn't even make sense. Like, where could you go where there is no there is no God? You know, there has to be some kind of divine spark there for life to even exist. So from the very beginning, it's saying, no, actually, there's communion all along. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. It doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, problems. Obviously, there are problems. And so if you could just start with, with folks, with this idea that you, you're not separate, you're in relationship, uh, you don't have to sacrifice anything in order to get God to turn his back around and now face you. God has always been facing you. God loves you. Um, God is with you. God is Emmanuel. In him, we move and live and have our being. Uh, God is close to the brokenhearted, et cetera, et cetera. It's all these really beautiful ideas. You know, mimetic theory seems to grow so quickly and so fast because of our intense awareness of lack and because of our intense awareness that we don't measure up. And so um, I might be making a leap here, but the basic idea is that, well, then God God couldn't love us. You know, we, we can't have peace, so we must be separate. Like we're so painfully aware of our problems. And so it le- it begins to lead us down this path. And of course, now all of us are living downstream from this polluted river of having done this for thousands of years. So we really naturally go there. So it, it, it posits this idea that we have to, we have to do something in order to get God to love us. And so we wind, it winds up leading us to, to victimization. Open relational theology will want to say, no, we don't have to do anything. God has been with us all along. And yes, you have problems, uh, but that's a part of what it means to be human. And so the antidote to our scapegoating things is to just take a breath and give grace to yourself uh, and space to yourself and realize that you don't have to do anything for love to be with you. Love is, love is with you. It's like me and my kids. I mean, you and your kids too, probably. My kids don't have to do anything. Uh, I, just, I just love them. It's like it's ridiculous. So as long as they don't have mullets, they're fine by me. (laughs) As long as they don't complain about what they're not entitled to and don't have mullets. That's it. I I love that. That sounds good. Uh, Can I read the, would it be a spoiler? Would it be spoiling things? If I read the last paragraph Mm -hmm. of your treatise. Wow. No, go for it. I am uncomfortable. I I have not had anyone call it a treatise yet though. So that's, well, that's what it says in the, in the first page. Oh, it's true. It's, I had to turn it in as a treatise. That's right. Yeah. That's what you wrote. And so, sorry. There you go. Uh, So it says, uh, now these three things remain. Our resolve to act intentionally, no matter what. Deeper instantiations of expectation, even without future guarantees. That's that's actually real interesting. And catalyzing non-scapegoating agent, 
and the, catal the catalyzing non-scapegoating agent of well-being known as love, though the depth of all this, I think, is love. What does it mean to act mm -hmm. intentionally? Yeah, so I'm basically stealing from my buddy, Tom Ord. And once you graduate, you can call him your buddy. You know, you don't have to call him your doctor, mentor, or anything like that anymore. Um, his definition of love is to act intentionally in relational response to others and to God for well-being. That's almost word for word, pretty close. And so what I do is I take that definition and I, I insert scapegoating in there because, you know, I want to be respectful to Gerard and it gives me a way to talk about mimetic theory. So, um, so the question was, what did, what does it mean? What I wrote, what does it mean to act intentionally? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So what this is trying to do is it's trying to define love. I would think is deeply needed. You know, love is a word that has probably been watered down a bit because it's used so often. You know, I love my wife. I love jazz. I love eating chalupas at Taco Bell. I mean, we, we use it for all these different things. Um, and so what Tom has done and what I try to do, I try to wrestle in my treatise, in my book, in my work with, you know, unpacking what love is. And so it's an intentional movement. It's not just like a, you know, this blob that, that this orb that does nothing. Um, it's, it's active. That's a really important piece to open relational theology. And I think it's probably an important piece to Christianity in general, but this, um, in process theology, it's called the lure. Um, I like invitation better. Like there's this constant invitation that's going out it, that that's very intentional and that emerges from probably the heart of God. Uh, yeah. It makes me think of, uh, James, how James, James to James, it, it's kind of sinning not to go out and help the widows and orphans. Uh, love is intentional, positive acts, and not just refraining from a list of do nots. There you go. Well, you just said it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, how about uh, deeper instantiations of expectation, even without future guarantees? Oh man, yeah. I love inst I love the word instantiation, like something being instantiated in you, like it, it feels like real, like corporal, like. There's real, this is a weighty thing. It's not some, you know, quasi spiritual thing that's out there. It's like part of you. Um, and, and it's plural. Like it's not just one, it happens one time, but like this, this psych, this, um, this pattern of things that you get to be involved in and the reality that what kind of works for you in one season of your life may not work quite that way the next season but if love is intentional it can instantiate itself again without a guarantee because this is tricky if there's a guarantee there's really no reason for faith or really there's really no reason for love if everything's already been predetermined and planned and so it's it's esteeming this element of risk and vulnerability that i to use not a great word appreciate I respect, I, I love so much about what I think the divine is and what I think is true about our, our best relationships. They're not controlling. So there's, there's real risk involved. Like your choices matter. 
And so um, it's this energy that's instantiating itself again and again, even though it doesn't mean that everything goes perfect for us. Yeah, Mel Gibson made this movie. I'm, I'm sure it's his best movie ever. It's called What Women Want. And uh, in that, he plays a character who could read ladies' minds. Yeah. You think of what, what a living hell that would be to be a lady that's married to him. Yeah. If he could just read your mind in the moment. Yeah. That would I don't I I don't feel like that would be a love relationship to be. Don't watch that movie by the way. It's a terrible movie. I, terrible I don't movie. know I don't know why I was like I don't know who it's made for. I don't know who the audience is. But um if if you're in that type of relationship it doesn't feel like love. It feels very one-sided. Yeah, there's no consent there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh we did talk about the last of your three sentences uh last of uh the three part of the mm -hmm. paragraph mm -hmm. uh, about the non-scapegoating agent of well-being known as love and how mm -hmm. love intervenes kind of in the scapegoating process mm -hmm. and so uh, i think there's a lot to digest in the things that you talk about i love thinking about models of human behavior and implications of those models of human mm -hmm. behavior and it's great to talk through mental processes of humans and uh, how how human beings and societies behave individually and in mass so i think there's a lot of value that you're contributing with this book uh, with this work and with relational theology especially in your defining and integrating this into your model of human behavior and so uh we're we're, we're just over an hour in this podcast um so i'd ask you maybe to give maybe any finalizing or summarizing thoughts, anything that you think is particularly interesting or uh, any calls for any future study for anyone looking into this sort of stuff? Well, yeah, that's, that's stuff. it. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's cool. That's interesting, that last part you said, because as far as uh, Tom and I know, it, no one has kind of formally tried to bring these two worldviews together, um, at least in this in this way there there were a few papers written and those were extremely helpful by my friends uh, uh martha Renicky and uh, caitlin carver who worked with dr Catherine keller those are some name dropping there because those are those are awesome theologians that i'm indebted to so they wrote some small papers a few years ago that helped me tremendously but in terms of like this formal approach no one's done this so i try to make it clear Oh, and I also want to mention my friend, Andre, Andre Rabe from South Africa, who is also doing some work with Tom Ward on mimetic theory and, and, uh, and open relational theology, though he's taking it in a completely different direction, which is awesome. So to your point, yeah, this is just a beginning thing. Like these are the, I'm like laying out possibly the key that a really beautiful song could be composed in. I'm not sure that I'm getting to the song yet. And, and I'm really humbled and honored to play a part in that. And frankly, by the way, I might, I might even be in the wrong key. I'm not even sure. Uh, but, I, but I think there's a few good notes there that I imagine these two venerable, really important paradigms and worldviews and ideas of anthropology and theology uh, will inspire others to you know, kind of do more work. And so I'm really, I'm really excited about that because it's not so much the writing, the work itself, though, for me personally, the work itself was incredibly important and it was cathartic and helped me work through some stuff, but it's fun to be a part of these things that are, they're just kind of almost like larger than life. And I think could really bring a lot of health 
to our to a world that desperately needs uh, some help. Absolutely, I think uh, being inspired by you, I'll write uh, Nietzschean will to power and open and relational theology. No, yeah, that, that, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> that, that, well, Nietzsche hated God, uh, <laughs> and so like sometimes you'll be reading quotes, people will be like. People take that God is dead quote out of context. Well, I read the context. It's not like it's not like we're far off base of what he meant by that. Right. 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 And so uh, but uh, I do I do like uh, all these these ideas. Um, you have some websites, right? You got two website links uh, that you want to plug real quick. We'll put links in the sure. description as well. Thank you. Yeah. So JonathanFosterOnline.com is the best way to uh, get plugged in with me and People should just jump on there right now and be a part of the newsletter. If you do that, I think I'll send you a free essay or a free chapter out of a book, an open and relational book. And I'd, I'd love to connect with you there. And then, um, yeah, you probably saw my email signature. I have a lovehaiti.org website. And that's a nonprofit that my family and I started uh, in 2015. And, and really, we don't have time to talk about this. And I know this is a big thing, but I'll just I'll mention it um, because it's so important to me. And it's really the genesis of all my deconstruction, reconstruction journey, of all the books I've written, and of Theology of Consent. Um, our oldest daughter passed away on New Year's Day 2015. She was planning to be a medical missionary to Haiti. So long story short, we started this nonprofit. My son now is the executive director, is absolutely crushing it in, in a part of the world that is, you know, desperately needs help. And so we're doing it to honor Quincy, our daughter, but really we're doing it to honor the the thread of love that that should be flowing through humans and we're trying to help Haitians. So yeah, I'd love for you to check out lovehaiti.org as well. Very, very sad note to end oh, the podcast on. <laughs> I know. I hesitated to even say it because it's such a like a massive thing, but it it's it it's uh yeah, it's a part of the part of the story. So yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I enjoyed having you on today, and uh, Thanks, I think man. it was a good time and a good conversation. Again, everyone, check out those websites. Questions or comments, you can put below in the comment or start a thread on the God is Open uh, Facebook group, which is uh, for all open and relational theologians to discuss theology. So mm -hmm. our guest again has been Jonathan Foster. Check out his new book published in October. All right. Any final words? Chris, Farewells? Is, goodbyes? You're really good at this, man. I've done this a bunch of times now, and you you pick up real quick on people who know how to do this. So thank you very much, and uh, and and now you've made me cry. So we have a mimetic thing going on here. You know, the tears are flowing both ways. So thank you for your uh, for your input. All right, thank you very much. All right, bud. Take care. <laughs>